Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. If you are a dog trainer who wants to help more people and make more money with your amazing dog training skills, then you should check out my friend Dom Hodgson's Grow Your Pet Business Fast business coaching programs. I was a member of Dom's Pet Business Inner Circle and in 2017 I attended his inaugural Poodle to Pitbull Pet Business Bootcamp so I can state without question that his marketing methods are effective and they will help you to make more money. By listening to Dom's advice, I personally increased my training fees by 300%. Dom has twice been a guest on this podcast and earlier this year, direct response marketing strategist Dan Kennedy called Dom Europe's number one business coach of dog trainers, professional dog walkers and pet sitters. You can book a place at Dom's next event, Impact, the Pet Business Marketing Success Summit, by going to www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash impact. Or check out his free 33 ideas at www.growyourpetbusinessfast.com slash 33 ideas. I've also recently started to offer online consultations myself. There's a video and voice calls. Rather than me selling these to you, I thought it would be a better idea to just read the reviews each episode as they come in. So here's a review that I got from Poe. Another chat with Nick today to help support a few difficult cases that have been playing on my mind. Easy chat, great thought-provoking questions, and best of all, some resolutions to go away with. Worth every minute. Thank you so much. Thank you, Poe. I really appreciate that review. If you're a dog trainer that is really struggling to up their game, or maybe you're a dog owner that's struggling to teach something then you can book a video call with me at www.nickbenger.com slash book today i'm talking to pat stewart pat is the co-host of the canine paradigm podcast and has studied under michael ellis and bart bellon he is a certified psa decoy in australia and is an expert in the nay popo system Now, Pat is a balanced trainer, so I know this episode is going to be controversial. And it's a little bit of a divisive thing because a lot of you are asking me in the group to do an episode with a balanced trainer so we can have this kind of discussion. And I actually agree with that. I think that is in the interest of the whole community to open up a dialogue between these two camps and just kind of knock down some of the barriers and get to know each other more. And me and Pat do know each other very well. You know, we've spoke for several hours and we've actually become quite good friends. And one thing I do know about Pat is he's a good dog trainer. He understands dog training and his methods are effective. I don't always agree with them, but we do have a lot of common ground. Um, Pat refers to himself as a positive first dog trainer. You know, he he does use a lot of positive methods and he actually is a listener of this podcast. You know, he he is very... um, in tune with what's going on in the positive world but he chooses to use some tools and some um, methods of training dogs that personally i don't necessarily agree with but what's important here is that we're opening that dialogue and we're having a conversation and i think that that's so crucial in the current climate where people just want to uh, argue with each other online all the time it's always personal insults 
It's always straw man arguments. Neither side represents each other's views particularly well. So I think that this is a healthy discussion to have. And I'm hoping that you guys can be open-minded. And even if you don't agree with Pat on everything, we can have this discussion and just keep it friendly, right? Keep it friendly and talk and, and open that dialogue. If there's one thing that I do regret about this podcast is that we focus so much on methods and actually... Even though we do disagree and we do do things differently, I know that Pat can train a dog, right? Like I, I completely, there is no um, dispute there from me. What it really comes down to is ethics. You know, the more that me and Pat talk, the more I realize that actually the difference that exists is more in the ethical side of things. And I would have loved to explore that more, but maybe that's for another episode. So I'm not going to ramble on too much. Let's just get into it. Hey, Pat. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so maybe a little bit of background here. Obviously, you have your own podcast, The Canine Paradigm. And this is, an, mm-hmm. this is kind of an interesting one because I think it will blow a lot of people's minds in that, you know, I kind of hang around in this positive re- reward-based circle. You hang around in this more balanced circle. And yet, we're mm-hmm. pretty good friends. We can have a conversation without trying to kill each other. You know, so... <laughs> 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 Maybe that's because we're a couple of continents away, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. you know, I think that part of it is that kind of, like, podcaster, like, connection, right? Like, you know, that's how we first started talking. We have some mutual listeners, and, you know, I think that we just kind of got put in touch that way. Had our... Mm. Got our kind of, like, debates out of the way. Not that we don't have them, you know. we I know we're always going going back and forth, but... I think that when like a positive trainer and a balanced trainer meet, there's almost like a compulsion to try to convert each other. Convert. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which isn't, I think, sorry. I I I don't think we do too much trying to convert each other, but I think you, you, like I, I like to have my um, beliefs questioned and I like to have to be forced to defend my ideas. And if I can't, then there's a problem, right? Um, and I think we do get along pretty well. So I, I know like we've never degraded to a personal attack. <laughs> you know, it, never, it never ends up me in me saying, well, can I swear here? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah I can, right? Yeah. It's never ends up in me just like, well, fuck you because of, because no reason. You know what I mean? <laughs> but we have. It's a pat. Just, we have a good yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. Just push your mic away a little bit. It's getting a little bit, uh, it gets yeah, it might be a bit too close. I'm, I'm to getting too excited. <laughs> yeah, so um yeah, it's good fun, man. And and I feel like, you know, this is one thing that is missing from you know, just the dialogue, right? Like people should be able to have these talks more often, you know, like mm-hmm. me and you have spoken a few times now via messenger, via, you know, actually calling each other up and and having these long discussions on just loads of different topics and mm-hmm. like i think it's good to be able to trade ideas because when you get this kind of like isolate you almost become like an isolated population don't you and almost like an echo chamber and when you get someone yeah, exactly yeah. that comes from a completely different background to you like you just get to trade ideas like literally just before we were talking we were talking about the language barriers right like some of the stuff that you've been taught and and you've learned you you've just got different words which is it shows the Mm -hmm. 
um, it shows the size of the kind of you know, like how isolated we are. The fact that we're both dog trainers and yet you can have a completely different vocabulary to me. Right. Like, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the times, uh, sometimes the arguments that people have, they're, they're really pushing towards the same point, but using a different using a different explanation of what that point is. Like if they were to watch something happen, they'd probably say, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And they both would agree then, but the, the, the path to getting there or the language around that path would, would trip them up often. I think. Yeah. That's why I think sometimes it can be tedious, but it is actually helpful to define terms, right? Like to actually say like, this is what I mean by aversive, right? You know, what Mm -hmm. do you mean when you say aversive, because sometimes you yeah. can find yourself arguing with someone for 20 minutes and then realize that you both actually are just arguing over different things. Yeah. Well, so, you know, and that's a good point. So for us and the way we teach it in, in my circle, and this is, uh, this is taught day one at like a Nipopo school because, because if we go really technical at those things, uh, you do need precise language to explain what you're talking about. Uh, and an aversive stim as in an aversive stimulus uh, is anything that stops one behavior but allows any other behavior to happen. So I guess, you know, you would expect that is a, a punishment. Like it stopped one thing from happening, but the dog is then free to do anything else. And then we we also then use the term like a correction, and a correction is the opposite. It stops every behavior but makes one behavior happen. So I would then, I think I would make a compelling case that you can't, correct a green dog a dog that doesn't know anything because you haven't first taught him anything in order to to get him to do that thing you can't stop everything else in order to do that because he doesn't know what that is and those two things become really important to us in the way that we're gonna uh, use our tools or pressure or whatever in that we have to decide am i stopping something or am i making something start yeah like you have a completely different lens on this than i do because i tend to think about one behavior right like let's say we're talking about barking behavior, right? Like, okay, we're focusing on the barking behavior here. If I apply a correction and that behavior reduces in frequency, then I've punished Mm. that behavior. Um, Whereas it Mm. seems like you view it as you're almost viewing multiple behaviors at once, right? Like the barking has stopped, but I've produced more... I don't know, like sitting or whatever it is that you're trying to increase. Well, everything would stop. So that's, it's whatever it is I want. The, the, the best example we always use, because you can say the same thing is, uh, imagine I've sent my dog to search. He's searching, um, you know, scent cones or whatever. And he stops that search to, to piss on a tree. Uh, if I use any pressure or whatever to stop him pissing on the tree and bring him back to searching, that's a correction. But now imagine my dog is, is free to do whatever he once, but I don't want him to piss on a particular tree and I use pressure when he does, that's an aversive stim because it stops him pissing on that tree, but he's still free to do anything he wants. I haven't asked anything of him. And that's like, that's sort of the story we tell in defining those terms in, in that an aversive stim just stops one behavior, but anything is free to happen. And that's either because we're, we're teaching a behavior. So we don't have something we can put the dog into or the dog's on his own time. And it's just something he, we don't want to happen. Um, so, so barking is a, a bit of a funny one because that can happen within a behavior. You know, you can still, he can still be sitting, barking, can be sitting right? and yeah. barking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which is a funny one. I just at a seminar, had a extremely barky dog that, um, is, 
is one of the trickiest. It's really easy to fix, but it just over a really long timeline, you know, um, it was a difficult one because they're it, exactly as I say, the dog can be doing quite beautifully the healing that was required of it, but barking crazily the whole time mm. and addressing that perfectly is really tricky. Yeah. I think that's tricky no matter where you're coming from. Um, like the, the mm. aversive, um, thing, like I've always thought of aversive as, um, anything the dog will work to avoid. Like that's always the definition mm. I've worked on. So I think even as we have this conversation, we're going to have to be careful because we could find ourselves arguing over something that we literally just aren't understanding each other. But before we even get into yeah. the, the theory and the training talk and just kind of geek out, and we haven't really got a plan for this one, we're literally just going to go where it goes. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about how you got started, Pax. I know you have an interesting story. Uh, yeah, so I was in the army for 12 and a half years. I was in a, a special forces unit here in Australia, a second commando regiment. Uh, and on one of the deployments I did in Afghanistan, it was back in, uh, I think it was 2008, I, um, uh, I basically saw a, a military working dog eat a person. And, uh, and I was like, wow, what kind of dog is this? And he was a, he was a, I was attached to a different unit and it, it was an American guy. And he's like, oh, it's a, a Malinois. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get one of those when I go home. Um, and I had this old dog, um, this old Border Collie that was really my wife's dog. So I got really into training, um, but minus a dog because I, did, I couldn't get a dog. And um, became really obsessed with the theory side of training and was doing a lot of research and a lot of study. Uh, and kind of went down the rabbit hole of uh, Force Free. I was really into uh, Ian Dunbar at the time um, and digested as much of his material as I possibly could and and was reading a lot of books, you know, like Don't Shoot the Dog was the first dog training book that I ever read. Um, and the, the area around me, the most of the trainers are Force Free trainers. So I was down that rabbit hole. And I was really, I was quite a zealot for it. I was like, oh, well, this is it. Because I think if you're reading the, the literature and how it, it, it's a no brainer, of course you should be that way. Uh, but then when I, that old dog eventually died and, um, uh, just of old age, she was the oldest, most decrepit dog I've, we've ever had. And, um, I went out and bought a Malinois, uh, and I, I got it from, it was, it was just a disaster <laughs> and um, it was not a great genetically dog. Like now, you know, knowing what I know now, I wouldn't have bought that dog for sure. But uh, he was not super strong nerved, but was a very, very, very dangerous dog um, and fitted into my house and my family. Great. And using all these training techniques that I'd learned and I could, tr I trained him to do all these cool things. He could do a lot, a lot of stuff. Uh, but, I didn't have the control over him that I needed and he was dangerous. Like he was really, because of the training that he'd had before he came to me, he really saw people as, um, as it was definitely a threat to him because he was, it was not a super strong dog, but he'd been, he'd been coached in how to relieve the pressure of the presence of people by extreme aggression. Um, and so I was, I was in this problem where I had this dog that could do all these great things. He was amazingly trained in a vacuum. Uh, and so long as I had the reinforcers available to him and he found them at the time reinforcing, he'd do exactly what I wanted. Uh, and I had people come over. I employed dog trainers to come and give me advice and, and they didn't tell me anything that I didn't already have in place. So I thought, well, I have to look a bit further. And that's how I, I linked up with um, some balance trainers. And before too long was able to bring that dog under control and he lived a happy life, you know, and was able to show him like, hey, you can't do that. I was able, 
I had all the tools and I had become quite good at showing him, yes, I, this is what I want you to do. Um, and all the structure and everything in the household was all in place, but he just was so committed to the idea. He was a very, very dangerous dog. He was very dangerous. Uh, and tr- the truth is, uh, um, I should never have been sold that dog. I could handle that dog now, no problem. But at that time, I um, I really should never have had that dog. I had no business owning him. Um, anyway, got him under control, and then there, from there began the, the training journey. Uh, at, dogs eventually came into my unit. We did end up getting military working dogs. And uh, by that stage, I was kind of on my way out from the Army. I, I broke my back in 2011 and um, was – I was still in, I stayed in the army till 2015, but, uh, but I was non-deployable at that time. And I was, I worked mostly in domestic counterterrorism stuff. So I was on the peripheries of the dog unit and I was always kind of there. Uh, I was like a dirty hang around, you know, it's, I was working the dogs that didn't work out and there's a high turnover of dogs in a, a, a military unit starting out. And so I had a lot of hands on with those guys. And at the time I was the sniper platoon sergeant in a domestic counterterrorism group. And so uh, I was kind of acting as a sort of platoon sergeant for the dog handlers as well and managing them a little bit and helping where I could, but I was never a dedicated dog handler in the military. Uh, and then, yeah, in 2015, my back injury sort of got too much to the point where I, I just couldn't stay in the army anymore and like I couldn't continue doing that job. So I got out and started my own training company uh, with a friend of mine actually who's uh, who came in. He's a military policeman and third generation military working dog handler, a Belgian guy. Uh, we did a, a video while we were still in the army. We did a video series on how to raise a puppy. So that's kind of how we got into the, the civilian industry. Uh, we bought a little Springer Spaniel and um, – raised that from eight weeks old to 12 uh, 12 months old and filmed a whole like a whole video tutorial it's about 25 videos uh and it's a it's actually quite military style because that's where our heads are at at the time of like this is how you train this like not military type training in the dog but the, the instruction to people like breaking everything into very small component parts and we filmed it over that 12 month period with this little puppy growing up and we have that online at mskennels.com there's my shameless plug uh, and then uh, I I got out of the army and um, took up training uh, private pet dogs you know was doing that on the side and and working with as many working dogs as I possibly can and um, before too long I got sort of mixed up with Bart Bellin who uh, I think I would make a compelling case is certainly in the balance training community is you know the best dog trainer around uh and have been learning from him for a few years now and uh you know i train in his system i'm a certified instructor of his system which is the nipopo system which is a a balanced training system that is a little bit different to what you might expect in that today's modern uh balanced training has you know i think a lot of your audience maybe has an idea that balanced trainers is all like you hear punishment based trainers and you know it's such an uncomfortable term because i know there are people that do that there are people that just punish a dog into total submission and now you've got this flat dog that uh they're happy with and that unfortunately a lot of pet owners are happy with um but that's not really the face of balanced training that i see uh you know i was a student of michael ellis as well and it's a lot of uh you know highly motivational reward-based training but lay it in with some pressure in places uh to bring some reliability to the training uh and and a lot of the times it's all positive teaching and then some as you say like aversives in the in the later stage and and that most people in the balance community use that aversives in a similar way you would right like avoid these things you got to do what i've asked 
Whereas the Nipopo stuff is uh, a little bit, um, it's a little bit different in that we teach the pressure in the learning phase and at a communication level pressure and nothing that even your audience would be upset to see happen. But we are, there's, there's, you know, at the minimum, like leash pressure has to happen at some, some point in the learning phase so that I can use that pressure later. If, if the dog says, no, I'm not going to do it for whatever reason, uh, I can use that pressure to, as a reminder and, that that pressure can bring on the behavior and at that point it's a correction not an aversive and that's kind of my my spiel about how we get into that language because i can make the dog correct with that pressure rather than stop him doing something i can i can show him that he must do it and the difference between the knee popo and a lot of the other balance techniques is people use uh their pressure when I say pressure, like, and that's however, whatever tool, whatever system people are using, um, but people use their pressure as a stop and, and because it's a punisher, but we use it as an activation. And so it's, it's never at a level where the dog is, is causing stress. In fact, if it is, then well, causing high amounts of stress, stress is a part of all learning. I think you'd make a case for that as well. Um, but the, the dog is never uh, in avoidance and the dog is, is never uh, flattened out and the key measure of us and how we keep the key measure of our training and how we keep our ethics in check is a huge part of what we say is heart and soul in the dog. So every behavior performed on cue with heart and soul. So the dog always looks good. And I think that as trainers, we sort of can identify that, uh, dogs don't lie about their attitude. If the dog looks good, if he looks flashy in the behavior, if he looks full of hope and, and happy to, to do it, he is. They're not, they're not making that up. Yeah. So, uh, so that's my long spiel. No, no. Firstly, fascinating because I didn't realize, I knew you were in the military. I didn't realize you were kind of that in the military, right? Like I didn't realize that you, yeah, you, yeah. you know, you how far it went. Like, so huge respect for that. Um, one thing that um, stands out to me, and, and we've had this conversation before is, even though you know we both come at training from very different perspectives, obviously we disagree on a lot of stuff. We do agree on a lot of stuff as well. But one thing that we definitely have in, in um, you know, we both agree on is this idea of keeping the dog happy, right? And I know that that word yeah. is like comes with a lot of connotations. What I what I call a positive conditioned emotional response, right? Does mm-hmm. does a dog look happy, basically? And and what yeah. you call it has the dog got hope, right? Is that that word you use? Hope. Yeah. Well, so we use there's kind of three terms. We we say flashy instead of happy because I understand that that want. word. Yeah, flashy behavior. I feel uncomfortable yeah. saying it uh, myself. <laughs> uh, we say hope is um, like he's working for this reinforcer. That's what we mean by hope. There's there's hope and desire. He's doing it because he really, really wants to do the behavior. And that all kind of gets packaged into, and this is Bart's term, that heart and soul. Like the dog, he, he does it because he loves it. He looks good doing it. He's doing it because there's nothing more he'd rather be doing in the whole world than the behavior that you've asked of him. Right. Yeah. And the, the, I think a lot of people now are going to be saying, why aren't we using the word happy? Like, I think that the thing with happy is we get into one of the one of the kind of things about training dogs is we focus on behaviorism right like what can we actually observe so i think that sometimes when we as dog trainers we try to get away from emotions because when we bring emotions into it we're basically guessing what's going on in the dog whereas if we can mm-hmm. if we can look at the dog's behavior and say you know he's got a waggy tail he's he's loose he's not tensed up you know he's not showing any signs of fear 
then that's why we prefer a term like positive conditioned emotional response. I know you have different labels for it. So, but yeah, that's one thing we definitely have in, uh, have, we both agree on because, uh, yeah, because I think that that is extremely important. I think like it takes care of the ethics component for me of dog training because I can look at the dog and I can go, he looks good. He's and dogs just don't fake it. If they're doing the work that you've asked of them and they're, they're doing it happily. And even if there's some pressure involved in that work, you can't say you are, uh, being unethical or you're being, uh, you know, to throw out that word like cruel or abusive, you just can't say that when the dog is performing the actions and looking amazing as he does it. Uh, and and if we all use that as our our base base me- measure, stumbling my words. If we use that as a base measure, then we can't go wrong. Um, and the problem is, you know, some dogs that might come to us in a really bad state can only get a little bit better than that bad state you know from their past or that's just who they are they've you know there's many reasons why that might be the case but our goal is always to try and improve the attitude of the dog and attitude i think we can see emotions we can't but but attitude we can i definitely think it's an important measure my concern with using it as the only measure is when you have instances of dogs that become overshadowed by what's mm-hmm. going on you know like i know you work with a lot of malinois right like if the malinois really wants to bite then it's willing to put up with a lot of shit to get to the bite you know that bite is is mm-hmm. so motivational that it's going to ignore all the aversives that come along the way so that's why i always sway towards more of a lima or a humane hierarchy approach because i feel like it gives us a a really solid kind of um system to work our way through yeah. So the the issue of overshadowing certainly exists, but I, aver, aversives again is it? It's a funny term, but even in both our definitions, if the dog goes through it in order to get what it wants, it is not aversive. So uh, that's just some dogs. Their desire will outweigh the the desire to do the the thing, get the thing, or be reinforced in one way or another. Uh, outweighs any pressure that will be involved in the process to get that. Uh, and you know those dogs are for. Uh, becoming harder and harder to find they're not uh it's not that common but also then to that dog it's not aversive so it's it is something that you're aware of and you have to of course be careful never to injure a dog and allow it to do something to itself you know especially there's a good saying that gets around in a lot of pit bull circles that the dog would run through or wood chipper to chase its ball right like so that's it's your responsibility not to allow him to injure himself um but also, that's if that's what the dog is is chasing the reinforcer, then it, it is not aversive to the dog. Um, you know, my dog, for just my own personal dog, is riddled with injuries because he is a he's not an extreme dog, but he's a very uh, highly driven dog, uh, and like he's torn his ACL from you know saw something move behind a fence and decided he was gonna he was just gonna jump the fence, which was impossible uh to to actually clear and got his leg caught and he he smashed a tooth by biting a metal pipe because he wanted the pipe you know (laughs) like um so those are things he did to himself on his own time no i think Um, you you made a really great point there about you know if if the if the dog isn't avoiding it in that context it's not aversive right like that is that's a great point and that's where firstly it's in that context right you know so for example Mm -hmm. um uh, I don't know, like a shock collar or something like that might be aversive in a different context. But when we have 
the bite sleeve on it's not a it's not it's not the dog isn't avoiding it because it really really wants to bite but that's not to say that it mm-hmm. isn't having any kind of effect on the dog right like from a from a stress position like i've said this on a podcast before right like with my little dog if we're using sausage you know i could hit him <laughs> you know what i mean like if we're training with sausage he will put up with anything oh my god Nick, it, i can't believe you just said that <laughs> Obviously, I'm not going to, but, um, you know, if we're using sausage, you could freaking do anything because he's so motivated by sausage, but I don't because it doesn't fall within my ethics, right? Mm-hmm. But ethics are subjective. Yeah, that's right. And so, like, if your dog is really highly motivated for the reinforcer, some some pressure in the learning to get that reinforcer, um, I don't see a problem with so long as the dog stays in in a motivation. It stays motivated. And, you know, one of the ways I teach this stuff is using imaginary made-up values. Like if you're going to use any amount of pressure, the value of that, say, out of 10, if it's a the pressure is a 3 out of 10 and the reinforcer is a 5 out of 10, then there's no problem. The, the dog will go through that amount of pressure and not perceive it as pressure so long as that value is lower than the, the reinforcer's value. Um, the positive reinforces value. What do you mean the dog um, won't perceive? And so, what do you mean by the dog won't perceive it as pressure? Well, so imagine uh, what's a what's an example? Absent tools. Well, it's like people crossing hot coals, right? So you, crossing hot coals has uh, an amount of it, it will eventually burn your feet, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not comfortable to do. But people put on a they build themselves up, and there's this idea of the the group pressure at the end the or the group reinforcer everybody has the big hug and cuddle at the end so they go through the hot coals knowing that that is going to be uncomfortable but what comes to them at the end is so much more reinforcing that they're happy to do that so that's what i mean by that and so it's the same if you're going to apply it to dogs say if you're using leash pressure as another example if you're going to coerce the dog with leash pressure but then as soon as that pressure comes off you the, the dog goes into the behavior that you want or away from what you want or you know whatever it is you're trying to do that pressure comes off, you click and then reinforce with a reinforcer that's of a higher value than the pressure was, then you will never have an issue with that dog going into demotivation. Right. And that pressure is is not enough. It's certainly not aversive in that point because it doesn't stop him doing anything. In that point, it would be just a negative reinforcement. Right, right, right. Okay, so I'm, I, I follow what you're saying. If we're trying mm-hmm. to get the dog to go from A to B, why do we need the hot coals at all? Well, in the learning phase, we certainly don't. And if the and the well, the hot coals is the hot coals doesn't apply. I know it's a, the kind of like metaphorical hot coals, right? Yeah. Well, so you know, to use the dogs as an example, if we want to send the dog from one side to another, from one marker board to another, uh-huh. uh, in in a learning phase, we would do that positive like as positive we show there's reinforcement going from one to another and so long as our positive outweighs any sort of uh so long as our positive reinforcer outweighs the the positive reinforcers that are available to the dog in the environment and that could be just not doing it at all because he's tired or he's satiated or whatever we don't have a problem that there's never an issue there but in some applications in some roles we need to be able to say to the dog hey even though you don't want to do this i need you to do it and at that point having laid in some pressure at what we would call a communication level pressure i'm doing my inverted speech marks none of your <laughs> listeners can hear right but my communication level pressure which is an amount of pressure that doesn't compel the dog to do anything it he would the dog would be happy in that amount of pressure 
all day uh-huh. and and that might be a slip lead on a like that I'm holding with one finger right uh-huh. and i the dog notices that that pressure comes on in at the asking of the behavior or even maybe just before it and then comes off when the behavior is complete that allows a dog to understand that their pressure can accompany into this behavior and it's not aversive in any way shape or form it's not compelling the dog to do anything he just is aware of it and then that pressure becomes into the learning phase and if need be later i can up that pressure to the point where the dog does want to um at least turn it off and knows the action to turn it off so he's never confused he's never finds himself in a state of like hey i'm under pressure via this collar i don't know what to do he's already learned the action it's on command Mm -hmm. but he now knows that that pressure can accompany the Uh command and compel into action okay all right i'm just trying to understand this because this is all kind of fairly new to me um Mm -hmm. so in, in that circumstance right so dogs going from one marker board to the other right as the dog is mm-hmm. in between his marker boards heading towards the destination, you've got the pressure on, but maybe at a low level, right? And then... It- yeah, well, not between. So it would start at, at the start. Okay. So the very first... As line, soon as you give the, the very first... Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, or even before. If it's so low that it causes no distress, okay. like if we're talking about uh, like a slip lead pressure uh-huh. held by one finger. Uh-huh. So just something that the dog can feel okay. but isn't concerned by at all. Right, but you then... You put it on... Okay ask for the known behavior when that known behavior happens you take it off and you still reinforce with your positive okay. reinforcement okay so to me this is this is still aversive right like this is still something the dog is trying to avoid you know if if your dog is at that level at that level he's not trying to avoid it he just notices but that you, it happens you... and then later in the future he will try to avoid but it. but here's my problem with that pat you know, if if it wasn't aversive, right? If if there was, if it didn't contribute to that dog's motivation at all, there would be no reason to do it, right? Like if, if the dog is going from A to B and you have the pressure on, and it's it's motivating the dog to respond to the cue, right? Mm-hmm. But it's motivating the dog well, to respond to the cue because it, it wants to turn the pressure off. Yeah, later when it knows the cue and it knows the pressure, right. So it's not as though it's not in this early phase. And this is where people uh, get upset and rightly mm-hmm. by this when you're trying to teach a behavior and teach a dog about pressure. Mm-hmm. So if you just grab that slip lead and then start dragging the dog over to the other marker board, I can see why. No, no, no. I understand what you're saying. You've taught the dog beforehand, but now this mm-hmm. is almost like a, I think you've said something along these lines before, right? Like um, if the dog doesn't go from A to B, the dog ha- wants to go from A to B partially because it wants that that pressure to be turned off. Yeah, well, in the early in the learning phase, he's going there from his own desire. Uh-huh. It's it's but positive once he's reinforcement. Trained. He's going there to get his reinforcer. Uh-huh. Once he understands it, we can layer in that pressure so that if he has a competing motivator, mm-hmm. we can say, yeah, but the pressure still exists. Uh-huh. You. And you can use that pressure to compel the dog. But he into the still behavior. wants to turn it off. That's why he's going from A to B. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Well, he he knows how to turn it off. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily have to uh-huh. be on all the way. Yeah. It can just be as a reinforcer of your command to say, "Hey, you must do this." Yeah. Uh, okay. And if if you don't do this, then there's going to be an increase in pressure. Well, there typically isn't because the dog understands how to turn it off. And so, of course, that is the implied or else, yeah, yeah. that the, the pressure, the, the volume of that pressure can increase to the point where the dog does find it, uh, where he does actively seek to turn it off. Okay. 
All right. I just want to make sure that I'm getting your position right before I kind of say yeah. what how we might approach that, right? So, like, you yeah. know, you're, you're, you're getting the dog to go from A to B. You've trained the dog completely positively to go from A to B. Then, mm. once the dog understands that completely, you put the pressure on, give the dog the cue. As the when Once the dog gets to B, the pressure is turned off. If the dog doesn't get yeah. to B or starts messing around along that, that path then the pressure is increased until the dog gets to be not necessarily increased duration is often the the key okay. measure so it doesn't have to be increased just it's inevitable at that point because he's on lead like it's going to happen at some point and that pressure stays on until he's there right. and the pressure if he shows intention to go to be mm-hmm. the pressure doesn't have to be on the whole time it can be on as like when the dog shows the right intention as soon as he is clearly going to do it that pressure can come off yeah, see, this is this is a very alien concept, and it's quite strange to me, Pat, because the way that we would normally do this is, firstly, we train the dog positively, so we're, we're you know, to get from A to B, so we're completely mm-hmm. on board there, at which point we're going to proof the dog for distractions, right? Like you said, you know, mm-hmm. the reason we do this is because we want the dog, we don't want the dog to find stuff that's more reinforcing in the environment and just decide, hey, I don't want to go to B, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to proof the dog for distractions, from the get-go so maybe we're going to have someone with a tennis ball standing between yep. a and b and if the dog goes to b it gets re- rewarded and then we're going to increase the distractions mm-hmm. the dog maybe the person's going to bounce the ball a bit or whatever so as much as possible we're going to get the dog used to responding even around distractions then we're going to then we're going to factor in reinforcement history right how many times have you gone from A to B and been reinforced, right? Because that seems like something that people underrate. You know, if if the dog has had, like there's a concept in, in behaviorism called the matching law, right? You know, if the dog has, has been reinforced a hundred times for going from A to B, even sometimes if the, if there are is other things in the, in the environment that are maybe even more reinforcing because the dog has such a strong reinforcement history they're going to follow through with that behavior so there are lots of kind mm-hmm. of ways that we can handle that problem and still remain in the kind of positive reinforcement realm so I was wondering if you if yeah. you do any of that or if yeah, we do if there's all a, of that okay yeah. So we do all of that. And so all of that would be a part of that learning phase that all of that is when I say about we, we're teaching the behavior using positive reinforcement, that all of that would be phases in that. And when you say like distractions, a funny word that I try to get away from too much because uh, motivated elsewhere is a better way to describe that. Like a dog doesn't, isn't typically like distraction. I think in people and everything, you're just more interested in something else. And the, the problem that we face in dog training is like you have the reinforcer that's available to you. If you have uh, like your dog wants to chase prey, then that is going to be way more reinforcing than what you have. And then you're relying on, as you say, your reinforcement history. And there's lots of different parts to, to getting all of that together. And, and in the teaching phase, I'm a hundred percent on board with everything you say there. But at the end, we want to layer in pressure at the end of that teaching phase so that if when I need the behavior to happen later, it, it doesn't happen. Then I can, I can say, well, now I have this tool because I've used it in the learning phase. A lot of people have this idea and certainly people do this. I'm not defending everybody that's ever called themselves a balanced trainer and trains a dog, right? People have this idea that you reserve punishment to the end and that you use pressure at the end. And the problem with then is you haven't taught the dog what to do in that time. 
And so it's, it's just, you don't control the behavior that's going to happen. Certainly with punishment, you can stop behaviors. You can, of course, that's what punishment is, but making sure a particular behavior happens doesn't happen with punishment mm. that happens with a negative reinforcement. Mm. And so that's why I want to show the dog this. And it's never at a level where it causes the dog to worry about the behavior because then that would not fit into my, my picture of what the dog has to look like when he's doing these things. So I want to uh, show him that there's pressure can accompany the behavior. And later, if I have to, I can use that pressure, that same pressure and usually at the same volume or intensity as a correction, like mm -hmm. I, in the way that I mentioned at the start, where I can stop everything else and I can say, hey, you need to do this. And, you know, it depends on the application of the dog. Like I'm a, uh, I, I train, I'm doing less and less pet dogs at the moment. Mostly I'm working with performance dogs and, and like competitors for sports and police and military type dogs. Uh, and for some pet dogs, if you're, it, it, it positive reinforcement, is fine to the completion. If you have a dog that's so highly motivated by what you have, say a dog with like a, a super, your dog with the sausage, super high level of, of, of super high value for that reinforcer, and you're never going to have a competing motivator elsewhere that stops a behavior happening, one that you've taught on cue, then you're fine. You don't need this. Okay. Um, so let's... But sometimes in those performance uh -huh. dogs, they're so overwhelmed and they're, they're in the sports, they're uh -huh. intentionally set up uh -huh. where they have uh competing motivators uh -huh. that are available to the dog at both times okay. and we have to be able to show the dog no it's this one not that one yeah i firstly let's just say i i don't dispute that this is i'm sure what you're doing pat is a very effective way of training a dog like i'm not uh -huh. uh, i'm not disputing <laughs> that for a second um so in this sports context um mm -hmm. presumably you have some i know that some of these these ring sports they mix up the distractions like that's part of the game yeah. right like they they don't use yeah. the same distractions all the time they're trying to be extremely creative it 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 just it's it's a difficult one for me because i can understand what you're saying i can understand why it works but at the same time i feel like we can achieve that with proofing and reinforcement history it's just we yeah. we might have to we have to do a lot of proofing and reinforcement history, like the example you gave of, of you know, if you're surrounded by rabbits, right? Like you can control toys, you can control food and all of this stuff, but you can't control rabbits. It's like, mm -hmm. well, you know, we train in an area with rabbits and we get the dog over that issue with proofing and reinforcement history. Um, mm -hmm. So if, if we can have any idea of what the distraction is going to be, or if we do enough proofing to the point where it generalizes, then we can deal with all of this with, with proofing yeah. and reinforcement history. So I just don't see yeah, the, the need to, to, to go there. Right. Until the day it, you find the scenario that you haven't trained for. That's, that's where this all comes into effect. Uh -huh. And so like this, this sort of training method, like, as I say, is developed by Bart Bellin and he's, he's an NVBK guy, Belgian ring sport, mm -hmm. where there are surprise scenarios. You don't know what's going to happen. And this is where this came about. And this is true in the real world as well. Like we're with police and military dogs is you don't control mm -hmm. the environment at all. You, and, and there is no scenario. You don't know what's going to happen. You have a, a broad base. My dog's going to conduct a building search, you know, mm -hmm. um, but what is going to be in the building and what's all those kind of things you you're not in control of uh -huh. and i agree with you i'm 100 on board that positive reinforcement training works beautifully uh -huh. but when it doesn't yeah. even when you reach a point where the dog doesn't do it if you're on the training day you go okay well now i know uh -huh. and this is something that i have to 
work on. But if this is a live operation, you need a way at that time to say, hey, I need this to happen. And and at that time, you need to be able to layer in the pressure that the dog has, knows and understands this is a correction and this is me being told I have to do this one behavior. And because And now because he gets pushed off of the behavior that he wanted – and now all the things that we spoke, you just spoke about, the reinforcement history, all those kind of things come back into effect and he goes back onto the job that he had. But it gives us a way to communicate uh-huh. to the dog, like, you have to do this thing. Yeah, but... And, and like I say, for a lot of people with their pets, no big deal. Like, if you, if you don't have... If you're never going to encounter the problems that are going if to... You, if your dog doesn't sit when you ask and you're not phased by that, then no problem. But in some people, the behaviors that they ask of their, do- their, jog, their, their dogs is life and death for the dog. They need to be able to tell the dog, hey, you have to do this in order to avoid the not just the pressure that I could give you, but you going into the wrong area mm. and, and being killed yourself. Yeah, okay. So uh, firstly, I, just to clarify, it's not like an either or, and you know that as well, Pat, right? Like it's not like sure. we, we train in this method or the dog doesn't sit when we ask him to, right? Like we can achieve No, nothing. no, that's right. And I know you don't mean that. Um, but the other thing is, you know, oftentimes when we talk about these methods, the justification is is you know these life or death scenarios this you know the dog might do this or is going to die but in practice mm-hmm. you, you know it seems like pat you know you you're using these methods with not just dogs that are you know sniffing out bombs do you know what, do you know what i mean and I, I feel like that a lot of the people that that kind of promote these methods um you know we, we're using these with pet dogs that don't encounter bombs you know they're not um you know they're not getting shot yeah. at every day so there's two things I could say on that. Um, the first is that in the sport, so a lot of people don't, I, I love dog sport. I'm crazy for it. Uh, I wish that in Australia there was more of it. Uh, and we don't have, especially in the bite sports, we don't have a culture of that in Australia. And we're, you know, there's maybe a few hundred people uh, in the whole, the whole country that are into it. And so it's not a common thing, but I love the bite sports. But the, the reason those things are so important is they're a proofing ground for the police and military dogs. They're without without the bite sports, the police and military dogs wouldn't have the training that they do. They wouldn't have the breeding programs that they have. They wouldn't have access to the right kinds of dogs. So it's important then that we, we uh, use the techniques that those dogs will face in their work in the sports that would prepare them for the work. And even though that individual dog might not go on to the work, like my dog, I compete in PSA with my dog, um, Protection Sports Association, which is an American um, version of ring sport to, to dumb it down. Not to dumb it down, but to simply explain it. Um, my dog's never going to be a police and military dog. He's my dog. I'm going to compete in that dog. But the the techniques that I use and and use on him will be then put into those other dogs. And so I need a place to to practice those things, right? And But then once you've done that and once you've been using these these techniques and you see that it has these excellent effects and there's no there's no fallout there's no negative effect onto the dog so we have all the positives that we get the behaviors that we want and my dog is flashy and he's got a great attitude and um he's happy to use the odds <laughs> and and he performs the behaviors with heart and soul and he's this great all-rounded dog it seems to me, why shouldn't I use that in, in other dogs and in pet dogs and in, and in behaviors where the dog is never going to, no one's life is going to depend on whether that dog sits or not, but the dog's life might depend on whether he can recall or not. You know, 
Um, and so with some behaviors, I'm, I have no problem teaching that. And with some pets, I have no problem teaching that because I've seen the effects. It's not like it's the problem with using any form of pressure when we like a, a lot of the force free community, uh, the reasonable people are happy to say, well, we keep that. Like, I understand the effects of these tools, but we keep them for police and military people only because they need them. And we, we get, we don't understand fully their role. That's fine. We keep it for them. Um, but the problem with that is when you keep it as a last resort, it, it, first of all, you get skills degradation because those people are the only people using it and they're not going to pass it on. You need civilians that are involved in this kind of thing and, and know and have an obsession with it. You know, I've been in the military. I know how it works in that phase. It's like it's a job. They don't go home. Typically, of course, there's exceptions, but they don't go home and think about this stuff. Whereas, you know, people who are involved in the ring sports, it's their life. They're crazy for it. It's all they think about. It's all they care about. So they're going to, they're the ones that are going to pass on this knowledge to other people and how to use the tool correctly. It sort of becomes a little bit self-fulfilling prophecy that these tools can only be used as punishment if you only allow them to be used as punishment, right? So if you allow people to use these tools and these training techniques and you can put it into dogs that are just average people's pet dogs or people just want to train for, you know, whatever purpose, but there is no stakes, I don't have an issue doing it in the same techniques I would use for the other dogs because I see that it works on the other dogs and I don't have any problems. I don't have any fallout. I don't have, I'm not flattening out dogs. I'm not causing distress to the dogs or undue stress. Um, I've got these happy dogs. So I like, this is why, um, you know, we can get along and we can talk about these things because I'm not pulling out a dog that looks like shit. And then you, and I say, yeah, but look how he can do all these behaviors. And that would be, I agree. If someone brings that dog out, I'm like, well, that's not a good, that, that doesn't, that doesn't support my cause. In fact, you're not part of my crew because your dog looks like that. You're not on my team. Um, but yeah, so I just don't see the, the problem in putting it into other dogs. Well, what I like about you, Pat is, is firstly, you're extremely open-minded and, and secondly, you know, um, you know, I think you do know how to train a dog, right? Like you're not, uh, I hope so. <laughs> do you know what I mean, it's like, you're not one of these people that is just kind of, uh, just kind of fumbling their way through, right? Like, I think you know how to train a dog. I just don't necessarily agree with how you go about it sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> but some of the right. time, right? Like the positive oh. stuff, I think we agree on a lot, but yeah. like, I just want to come back to something. I wanted to come back to this idea of, of, of you know, this pressure that we put on the dog, right, mm -hmm. to, to motivate them to do the task. Do you agree that the dog wants to avoid that pressure? Which is what well, is motivating them to do it, as well as the positive reinforcement that comes afterwards? It, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tricky question, and it has a lot of layers because the pressure has different volumes so you can put it on with different amounts of pressure and at some layers of the pressure some levels the dog is actually activated and excited by it because of the classical conditioning but when you have the pressure on you relieve the pressure and you immediately uh, click and give a positive reinforcer that pressure actually announces the positive reinforcer and so you find dogs that are not actually avoiding it they're activated by it they're excited by the idea of it of course at the higher level and our goal is at, we're never uh, trying to get to that higher level, but of course there is 
the option of paying compliance like that. And that's where people's minds immediately go to is that that aversive that they're trying to avoid it. That's paying compliance. That That's a, a, a scary word that upsets people to use, but that's the truth. That's why a dog would avoid anything like that. It's paying compliance, but uh, that's not where we want to go to it. And provided we layer in that pressure along the way, we typically don't have to. Right. It, the, the goal is that the, that dog is activated by the pressure and at the lower levels of the pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, he's, he's excited by it and compelled to do the behavior. And I know that this is a really foreign thing for people to understand because it's counterintuitive. It, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I can prove it. I can get my dog out. I can show it. Mm-hmm. Um, your listeners, uh, you know, should look up. It's it, This is a very famous video in the balance training community, but there's a my mentor, Bart Bellin. You look up, you get onto YouTube and type in Bart Bellin and Thor, and there's like a 10-minute video of him working his dog. And the dog is wearing an e-collar, and the dog um, is – he uses the e-collar throughout. You can see that happen. Uh, but the dog at no stage ever dips in extreme motivation. The dog is like loving the work and the dog is activated by that pressure. So it's the dog's never really trying to avoid it in that video. And that's our goal. Our goal is not to make the dog want to avoid the pressure. Of course we can do that. Of course that's that, that is down the line if it needs to be. Mm. But typically we don't get to that point yep. because we have that activation. Because the thing is, I, I'm not disputing this works, but I think we might have different ideas about why it works. Right, I, I want to get to the bottom of why you think this motivates the dog to do the task more because it sounds like, you know, how I see this is this is the dog is wanting to avoid this pressure and the way that it knows to do that is to follow out, the, uh, carry, carry out the behavior as quickly as possible so the pressure turns off. That's how I see it. But it seems like how you see it is that this has been conditioned with the um uh with training which is a positive thing and so the dog kind of likes the pressure but mm-hmm. but this that's a very alien concept to me because if that was the case why not just reward the dog at the end right like it, you know like if we but you still do that you still do yeah but why not just do that if we're just using it to, as a positive reinforcer well because so it's both it's both of, it's both of what you just said so the dog is activated and enjoys the pressure but at the end, if 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 our positive reinforcement isn't enough, if there's a motivator elsewhere and the dog decides I'm interested in that, we can still use that pressure. And how high we'll use that pressure, it, we actually can use it still at the same level that he likes and enjoys because he knows the behavior. So I'm pulling it, my hair and, out here, and, Pat, because uh, this I I, this just doesn't make sense to me. If 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 you if say let's say the dog doesn't do the behavior, right, and we mm-hmm. keep the pressure on. And then somehow this this motivates the dog to then f- carry on with the behavior. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand how that can be the dog trying yeah, to avoid so, the pressure. No, but that is at that point it is right. So at that point, how can he's, it? How can it? How pressure. can one stimulus be both a positive reinforcer and aversive? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's different volumes and it's different timing. So that when it's when it accompanies the command, it's a reinforcer of the command and the dog activates by it. And if you have a reinforcement history of using pressure followed immediately by a positive reinforcer, mm-hmm. it's the same as like you, you'd, of course, all your listeners would understand the clicker announces the food. Right. Well, if the pressure announces the clicker announces yeah. the food, then the pressure announces the food. Right. Right. Yeah. No, so I you follow have you. Com- that is I've, activated I've, by it. I follow that thinking completely, Pat. 
But but where I struggle is you're saying it's a positive reinforcer in one sentence and then in another sentence is something well, no, that no, wants it's to a, avoid. So it's kind of yeah, like so it, it it's like a it's a negative reinforcer. It's a negative reinforcer for sure. There's no no getting around that. But it's not a negative reinforcer that brings a dog into demotivation. And and there's the the volume of it. So at a particular level, this is this announces like it's a escape. It of course it's escape. Uh, escape this pressure in order to get your positive. Yeah. And then eventually it is avoid that pressure in order to get your positive. Right. right? So the, okay, on so the work. You, now I can, when you say it that way, I completely follow you. But then when you say yeah. that this, it, the dog likes the pressure, do you know what I mean? Like there's, you, dogs yeah, don't yeah. avoid things they like, right? Like if the yeah, dog yeah. liked the pressure, it would just go, well, fuck get into platform B. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy this stimulation. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, but that, <laughs> He, he only likes the pressure because it announces the the reward, the reinforcer, contingent on the behavior. So he still knows this is my this is compelling me to action. I have to do the thing, and the moment I do the thing, I get the reinforcer. But there's never demotivation. Uh, and of course, like I say, like I'm not hiding the fact that eventually, at the end, he avoids it because the the volume is higher, the pressure is higher, the the feeling is higher to the point where he goes, you know what, I don't want to go through that. But he still enjoys the lower mm-hmm. level. He's still activated by the lower level. Yeah, it's a foreign concept. It confuses people, but you can uh-huh. like, like I say, uh, we can pull out the dogs and they look, they look great. The uh-huh. the a dog that's raised and trained in this system looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. They 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 love the work. Mm-hmm. They work for the reinforcers. Uh-huh. And look, I just want to stress. I mean, I know you understand this, but there's so much of the the positive reinforcement work that goes into the start Uh of this, right? There's so much that goes into the front Mm -hmm. end. This is not people just getting their dogs out and like cramming them into behaviors. Mm -hmm. That is, they're not my people. They're not who I'm talking about. No, no, no. Uh, I I think that's an important differentiation to make Pat. And and actually that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you particularly because what you're talking about is different, right? Like there is a difference there between, I mean, the way that you use it is, is very different. So, that's an important point to make. And actually, as positive trainers, it's very important for us to understand your point, you know, where your perspective is completely. Because one of the things that drives me mad is going online and seeing misrepresentation of people's views. And I know you feel yeah. the same way. Uh, I mean, that happens yeah, on totally, both sides. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. you know, that's one of the reasons I love talking to you is because it, it gives me a deeper understanding of, of why you train in the way you do. Even if that's not yeah. the way, that's not my back, right? Yeah, I think, you know, for me, I'm into that performance training and I want to use the, this is the best techniques that I've been able to learn. And I've traveled the world learning this stuff, man. I, you, I've been to a lot of different dog trainers. I've, I've studied under a lot of different phenomenal people. Um, and this is, this is where I've fallen. And this is the best results that I've been getting in my life and the happiest dogs I've been getting in my life. Uh, and of course, this is a complicated system. It took me years to learn and I teach as well. You know what I mean? So like, I, I wouldn't expect people to understand what I'm talking about exactly in a one hour podcast, but I would, I would hope that they get to the point where they can understand that it, it, it's, it is some, there are people out there who are able to, there are balanced trainers who are able to use these tools and all the, all the various tools in a way that activates and motivates the mm-hmm. dog rather than just shutting dogs down. Um, and, you know, like I say, I'm, I am obsessed with performance training and if there were a better system, I would be into it. I would be wanting to learn it. Uh, 
And the good thing about, like we say, is a lot of the sports now have it all built in. Like the attitude of the dog is an accessible part. Mm-hmm. So we can't just, even if there's a system where I can get the dog to be super reliable, which there is, like, of course, I can just force a dog to do all these mm-hmm. things. The dog will be very reliable mm-hmm. if I go old school mm-hmm. negative reinforcement. But he'll look like shit and, and, and not want to be there. And so there's safe checks in the sports now to 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 make sure that doesn't happen. In, in fact, in like IGP, recently renamed IPO, you can get an excellent, but if you're like by scores, your dog can perform the task to get you one bandwidth of scores. But if the judge doesn't like the attitude of your dog, they can drop you a whole band of scores. So you go down to like a very good from an excellent if if your dog doesn't look good on the field. So we've got these safeguards. We've got these measures that the dog has to has to be flashy in the work. Let's, let's just change uh, subject a little bit here because... I want to get to this as, as well because we've spoken about some of these cha- changes in sports and and the way that things are going and and I want to understand your priorities a little bit more because I know for you as a competitor someone that's very competitive you know the desire to win is is extremely high. Where well, do, where does it that that w- so I don't I don't want to make you out seem some like mad manner so in my game in the game well in the game i play in psa is so hard the desire to win is is nice but to pass is right. what you're trying to do in okay PSA. okay it, psa is more about i mean of course there's people who want to win titles right um want to win the championships or whatever but mostly in psa the game is so hard people are just trying to pass to get to the next level yeah so how do you feel about this whole when you're putting together a sport like people have said before in a hypothetical world, if if we are creating sports where you need to use uh, aversives or you need to use electric collars to win those sports, should those do those sports have any place? Yeah, well, that 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 speaks exactly back to as I said before, in that the techniques that come from the from those sports are the ones that get fed into the police and military units. And so, for people who like, if my dog say. Uh, one of the things I'm training for my dog at the moment is to ignore an agitating decoy, a decoy who really is trying to be bitten, to not bite that one and bite a passive one because I said that's the one you have to bite, right? And so uh, that if my dog one day bites the wrong decoy, no big deal, right? I just get disqualified on the day and we walk off the field and we try again another day. No problem. But if you're police dog bites the wrong person because you've got a hysterical bystander and you have a criminal who is drawing a gun but is not seen to the dog and you say i need you to bite that one rather than the hysterical bystander that's a tragic event and that is a real real problem that uh is gonna be an issue for not just that person but for dogs capability worldwide it's a big problem and so the techniques and the people who develop those techniques and and uh, the chain of training, like people have to, I suppose it's, I'm in a unique position having been in the army for so long to explain and that there's a high turnover of people and for them it's a job and they have so many skills. You talk, a, you take a, a special forces dog handler, right? The amount of skills that guy has to have, like he, here's a hypothetical example for you, right? He might have to parachute out of a, uh, like a C-130 into water carrying his dog. He might have to assemble the boat. He might have to transit over water, climb a beachhead, uh, walk, you know, 20 kilometers to his target, use an explosive device to enter the building. He might have to then fight through and then maybe use that dog to look for 
explosives on the site. That huge gamut of skills that he has to maintain and that dog is just one tiny piece of it that has to accompany the whole way through it is they don't have time to be obsessing over and learning these techniques. They need people who are involved in the sports to, to be able to develop those skills and pass it on to them. The, 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 it's a little known fact, especially even by a lot of police and military people, that the the dog sports is the community that props up theirs. Without the dog sports, they would be in big trouble. They wouldn't have breeding grounds and they wouldn't have pooping grounds for training and techniques. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of um, police are now bringing in civilian trainers for this stuff. And those civilian trainers have to develop their skills on the field. And so that is sort of my long-winded answer to your question as to why it's required that we do have these skills and why like uh in the sports even though there's nothing but an empty trophy that's available there's no prize money in in dog sports there's nothing other than you get a a a ribbon at the end of it um people are doing it because it it is a proofing ground for their training techniques and and exactly as i say like I, I can talk to you and to your listeners about all these techniques that I happily will use on a dog um, and know that there's no negative out, out, outcomes and impacts on the dog because I've done it. I can pull the dog out and show you. I can I can prove it. And it's important that we have the sports as a proving ground, not just for techniques that will be used by police, but for people like me who are happy to come on and talk to your audience, the largely positive reinforcement audience and show look here's my dog you you can critique me on him i don't mind if you've got if you've got a way of making him better i'd love to hear it because i'd want to improve the quality of my training Hmm. well look uh i i want to talk about the fact that we're able to have an hour-long conversation about the use of electric collars (laughs) the use of aversives hey i said pressure you said electric collar okay well no worries um it doesn't really matter (laughs) all of this stuff you know we're we're able to talk about all of this stuff yeah, yeah. And, and still be friends and still have a good time. So yeah, that's something that I hope people can take from this that, you know, when you're coming across people with different views, you know, have a honest discussion. One of the things that we've spoke about is, is how people always want to straw man each other, right? Everyone wants mm-hmm. to like, um, you know, here's, you know, everyone wants to take someone and, and represent their views in the worst possible light. And this happens on both sides, right? You know, like you see the on the balance side, you see people talking about like, oh, he's a cookie pusher. Yeah. He just feeds dogs cookies all day. On the on my side, it's like electric collars will fry your dog's brain, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? And, and it, there's, it, there's a real lack of honest conversation. There's a real lack of people that are willing to share ideas and through talking to people like you, through watching a lot of materials from the balance community, I've learned a lot of stuff, you know, that, that I might not have learned otherwise. And I know that you're the same, you know, you've read a lot of positive reinforcement stuff. You've, you've spoken to and listened Mm -hmm. to a lot of positive reinforcement trainers. And I think that we could do a lot better job of sharing these ideas. Yeah, for sure. I agree with that. I think that the, the dog training community as a whole is so fractured. And I think that even, we have this idea we talk about there's positive only trainers and then there's balanced trainers. Uh, and like, we think that's where the fracture ends, but even then that breaks and breaks and breaks and breaks and breaks into smaller pieces. There's everybody's in their own little clicks and it's not helpful to anyone or anything. And, and I think that all of us need to acknowledge that if you're, well, here's the problem though, me and you, and I think 90% of people out there are more, 
uh, doing what we're doing because we love dogs and we love training dogs. And, and as I say, like my ethics is taken care of because I never want a dog to look unhappy. If he looks unhappy, he is unhappy. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course there are people out there and I'm of course have to acknowledge that there are people out there who don't give a shit about dogs and are just making money and have found a way to do that. So, uh, those people are, are really the ones that cause the issues and cause the division. And there's people, there's people about that on, there's people who are like that on both sides. There's extremes at both ends who are actually, you know, really clearly causing animal welfare issues on one side, but also doing it in a not so obvious way on another. Uh, like for example, the banning of particular um, training types, like, you know, or not even tools, but just ability to, to train dogs in a particular way or, or let dogs bite in a, you know, bite a, a, a decoy or whatever that's banned in like here in Australia, that's banned. That's illegal to do in Victoria. One of our States, you can't do any man work and there's dogs that, like they're specifically bred for that. So that's a welfare issue. And that dog was bred for that purpose. And now you're taking away the purpose. And that's just one example. So I think for all of us need to understand that we're in it for the dogs and we might have different ways of going about it, but I think it's like, that's good. That's okay. So long as we keep that, does the dog look happy? Is the dog doing what we need him to do? Whatever that is, whatever your application, that might be sleeping on the couch if, you, if that's what you're into, or that might be hunting down and chasing bad guys if that's what you're into. So long as the dog looks good, is happy doing it, there's no problem. And well, and I, I think for me, it's more about having a respect between two people, having a conversation, right? Sure. You yeah. know, like I've seen people from uh that that have trained their dogs and their dogs look horrifically miserable but if mm. if we sit down we're going to have a conversation and and we're going to share ideas and i'm not going to call that person horrible names and and we both go away happy hopefully like that's my goal mm-hmm. so regardless of the dog training let's have uh let's try to foster a community where we can share ideas without all of the hatred and and the straw manning and the misrepresentation and i i think that that would just leave us in so much of a better place yeah yeah i agree i think i think one problem in the industry as well is people uh want to talk about training a dog for an application they've never been involved in and how that should look that's something that i find very frustrating um and I try to avoid at all costs. You know what I mean? Like I've never trained a dog for agility, for example. So it's not my place to tell you how you should train for agility. The problem is people who want to then say, who have never trained a dog in protection sports and then want to say, well, you, you should or should not train in this particular way. And it's like, if you can, if you can pull out your dog and do better than me, then I definitely want to hear from you. Um, but if you haven't, it's not fair to take away the tools from people who, who, who do. And I think it's the same in, a little bit the same in dealing with like extreme aggression cases. I sometimes hear people say, Oh, you don't need any, um, you don't need any tools to train aggression cases. All you need is, is positive reinforcement, but then they don't take on extreme aggression cases. And it's like, well, yeah, well, you know, I don't like know. You, we, we had, so a little bit of background for the, I'm list. not saying everybody, but I'm saying I know people that do the, do the, that. The thing right? is They're, though, we, we literally recorded an hour podcast on that right, yeah. <laughs> and it didn't yeah, work yeah. out. So yeah, it, uh, and actually, I don't know how this schedule is going to go out, but either the next episode or the episode before this will be Michael Shikashio, who does work with extremely aggressive dogs. Uh, yeah. And and yeah, so that will be an interesting uh, one to listen to. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I just want... 
So for me, how do we go forwards fostering that community of people that share these ideas? Uh, and one thing that's become apparent to me more and more as this po- podcast is, or just the whole idea of podcasting has taken off is as people that have podcasts, it's actually, it's that, we actually have a surprisingly big role in leading conversation. Like that's one thing that mm. yeah, I feel is happening more and more. Like, you know, we talk about something on the podcast and then I see like five threads about it on Facebook seem, you know, either about the podcast directly or seemingly having spawned off of it. So mm-hmm. that's why it's one of the reasons I really wanted to do this podcast with you, Pat, is let's kind of build some bridges here. You know, this, this, uh, you know, share yeah. ideas and, and take a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think, I think for sure. I think you summed that up perfectly. I think, um, <laughs> I don't have anything to add. Um, uh, you know, there's no point in arguing over over techniques and tools and techniques when you can talk to an individual and be reasonable. If you can't be reasonable, then there's no point having the conversation. Uh, it's just it's not going to go anywhere, and you're just throwing shit at a wall. You know, there's no point in in it. And I think, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking as you're saying. Then I think one of the reasons me and you get along is see, I wouldn't have even I wouldn't have paid much attention to you because I I just am like, oh well, that's how he's trained dogs. Cool, whatever. That's that's up to him. Because I think we are so tribal as people, we want to go into tribes, but we're in the podcaster tribe, right? So you're in, <laughs> <laughs> you might be in different dog training tribes, but we're in the podcaster tribe. So that's where I was like, that's where the, I think that's why the line of communication opens up between us. That's an interesting then, insight. That- yeah. So then I think maybe it's find the common ground, right? Because I think that uh, that's why me and you start talking, hey, you have a podcast, I have a podcast, like. And then, then we're back and forth on training techniques, but we're already were civil and reasonable about our podcasts rather than our dog training. And then that spilled over. That's an so incredible find... insight there, Pat. Like that's a great yeah. point. So maybe that's the tip to take away from this. If we want to foster uh, a healthy back and forth and a healthy kind of community in the, this dog training world, a big tip is find common ground. Like, hey, we yeah, both yeah. have Malinois or we both love Shepherds or we both love Border Collies or whatever. Um, yeah. Try to find some kind of common ground and then don't straw man people, right? Always yeah. try to represent their, their view in the in the best way possible and, and just have that back and forth without getting angry, you know? Check your emotions and, and just try to have have a civil discussion like adults and i think with most people that common ground is just going to be the positive reinforcement start like there's this misconception that um there's there's one thing that drives me crazy is the punishment based trainer like that that term just infuriates me because as you know as everybody knows you can't teach a dog to do anything with punishment you can only stop things and so you can't look at someone whose dog can perform a bunch of behaviors and say that he's a punishment based trainer that term just drives me mental and so uh we need to meet on the in the middle on what we can agree on on how to train a dog using positive reinforcement and people like myself and i'm not extraordinary or exceptional this is the majority of balanced trainers start highly motivational it's just at the at the end they want to bring in that reliability and have a tool to say well uh, to a tool to use as a correction where we say even though you're elsewhere motivated i need you to do this behavior and all the techniques to get to that point uh in the training of the behavior 
I doubt that we would have any disagreement with when you're talking about bringing in distraction and reinforcement history. I, I'm on board with all of that. It's a, we, we do exactly the same thing. Um, so it's like the last 10% that there's a disagreement on. It's not at the start. And it's madness to, to focus on that 10% first. Rather, we could probably have a lot of good information exchange in the 90%. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I actually think you do a really fantastic job of representing the balanced community. You know, like you're very level headed, you're, you're open to having these conversations. You know, you, you do know about positive training, you know, like you, we could, we could literally do a podcast on clicker training you know like yeah, totally. yeah, yeah. it's not like you're you only exist in that 10 percent, which i think is the assumption yeah. that people will have going into this podcast right like oh you know yeah. nick's had nick's got a, a trainer on that that uses corrections or, or whatever label you want to mm-hmm. put on it and that's all he's going to know about well no actually we can have a a, a back and forth and, and learn a lot from each other within the 90 yeah. percent yeah totally um that that is shocking to people. You know, I did a seminar on the weekend, and it was lunchtime before I finished talking about the clicker and how I tr- how I load the clicker and why I load it in a particular way and bringing the maximum amount of power and salience to that little noise. And people are like, "Hey, this is the Nipopo guy. He's here to teach us how to use pressure." And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, but there's no point. There's no point understanding the pressure if you don't understand all of this in the first place, all of the positive in the first place. You need all that." Yeah, well, I I think you're doing important work, you know, like, um, from, okay, so here's, let me show my ignorance for a second, um, Pat. It seems to me like when Michael Ellis started getting really popular, that was a big Mm -hmm. turning point for the balanced community. Like, then it seems to me like that made uh, balanced trainers a lot more positive. Like, that built up the 90%. Am I right or wrong about that? Yeah. Oh, mate, I don't know. I, I don't know what impact Michael had on that. I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, and I think that he becomes popular in different circles in different ways. So when I got when I started taking dog training really, really seriously in about two thousand nine or ten, Michael Ellis was he was around then. So it was um it it was always a part of the scenery for me. Uh and like I said, Michael's phenomenal. You know, Michael's strength, I was a student of his. I went to his school. His strength is in, I mean, he's a phenomenal dog trainer. Don't mis- misunderstand me. He's excellent with dogs, one of the best. But his strength is in training people. Uh, he's he's an unbelievable coach and um, an orator. Like he he has so many ways of explaining himself. And he it's not like he's just um, spitting out the, the material. Here it is verbatim off of the board. You, you in the class you can have lots of people that say don't understand it one way and he's got 10 other ways of explaining it and not because this is the material i'm putting it out it's because he's he really truly believes it and he can put out the work to show it and so that's michael's strength and and he would definitely i'm 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 certain he would have had a huge impact because you know that was sort of pre streaming being what it was when the Lieberg DVD started being available. Like now it's everything you can stream and everybody under the sun, including myself has a video series on how to train a dog. Everybody does that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But his stuff was out back in the day when you had to share DVDs around. Don't let Ed Frowley hear that people share DVDs to get self No, that's how I was. (laughs) That's certainly how I was introduced to Michael Ellis through old school DVDs. Yeah. Those, those old things. And and yeah. since then I've 
I've watched some of the newer ones on their streaming service, which is really cool. Yeah. And yeah. that was probably my first introduction to a more thoughtful, balanced training approach, right? Yeah. Like, because before that, all of the balanced training that I had come across was very punishment heavy, was, and a lot of it was rooted in just like what we would both agree is just bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. you must alpha well, roll. Well, it's the what dog, people knew. Right? Like, it's what people knew at the time, you know, it's, it was that they were working with the best that they had and they were getting the results that they were happy with. And so they weren't looking elsewhere. And I think it was, yeah, that book, Don't Shoot the Dog is what really caused the revolution in dog training. Um, and then to talk about positive reinforcement and that, I think a lot of that book caused a lot of good, but also it was misinterpreted by dog trainers so much. Uh, and has has caused not problems with dogs, but has certainly limited the performance of many dogs in that, we misunderstood as dog trainers largely that the the marker and the importance of the idea, you know, with the all that info coming from marine mammal trainers. Your guys probably understand this, but a lot of people don't. Yeah, you know, they they're clicking and they're paying the dog in place because that's what you've all, we've traditionally done with dogs is they get their because the reinforcer was affection for so long, then you have to go to the dog in order to give the re- the affection the reinforcer. And there's so much more power that comes from that click release. The idea of those dolphins, you can't swim out to the dolphin and, and give him the fish. He has to come to you to get the fish. And that just that alone is just one thing that, you know, on, on the topic of positive reinforcement, I could talk about for ages and the difference between paying in place and making the dog come back to you to get the reinforcer with your mask behavior out there. We should do that on your podcast. We should yeah. do one just about positive reinforcement. That would be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. talking sure. of talking of your podcast where can people find that uh yeah so we're on everything um we are the canine paradigm uh i do that with a, a good friend of mine glenn cook uh and we have a lot of guests on and we just talk shit to each other sometimes uh, and we're on every podcast thing you can think of itunes google blah 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 spotify all of them um yeah oh, fantastic we'd love to Anything else that you, you uh, wanted to cover there where people can find you online uh, in terms of your, uh, yeah. your stuff? Or? Yeah, so my business now, uh, so we have that video series. Uh, if people want to check that out, it's MS Kennels, um, mskennels.com. And that's a, a complete series on how to raise a puppy. And interestingly enough, that is just 100% positive reinforcement in that. There is no, <laughs> there's nothing else. Um, and that's a really cool series. I still have that dog. She's five now. We raised her. It's the first year of her life. Uh, and then my business that I'm working under at the moment is Operant Canine. We've got a Facebook page and a website, operantcanine.com.au. Um, we're doing seminar. I'm doing seminars all over the world, none in the UK, uh, although I'm in talks with someone at the moment, so that might end up happening and maybe we can maybe we can go for a beer. Yeah, definitely. If you come to the UK, we've got, we've got to do something. Maybe we have to do like an in-person podcast or something. Yeah, it'd be good. It'd be fun. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, thanks so much do for coming dog on. Training. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Even if I disagree with Pat on some stuff, he is an awesome person and he's actually become a really good friend and we talk a lot off air as well. So if you want to grab the show notes for this episode, you can do that at nickbenger.com slash pat hyphen Stuart. And if you want to talk about this episode, as long as it's respectful and civil, then you can do that on the Facebook group, which is Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. If you're not a member of that, just search that up on Facebook and put in a request to join because we have some really awesome conversations go on over there. 
And if you're considering a call, let me read out one more review. So shout outs to Sarah Boyle, who left this review online for the uh, video and voice calls. Sarah wrote, I had a virtual cuppa with Nick on one of his one hour consultation calls this afternoon. And he has put several things into play for me that I've been stuck on, both as a dog owner and an aspiring dog trainer. I got to say, I was very nervous about booking the call. I felt like I didn't want to waste his time or that I wasn't good enough to think about dog training as a future career. But when I finally plucked up the courage to book it in, I was so excited and relieved about being able to talk nerdy dog training and business strategies with him that my fears and self-doubt disappeared. He's already sent me an email covering everything we discussed on the call so I can refer back to it, and he's given me clear steps to help me tackle my dog's reactivity to other dogs, and honestly, I can't wait to get started now. We also got geeky and discussed the industry from a business perspective, the associations to consider, and how I can go about getting experience with other dogs in the meantime. The call has injected a big dose of motivation for me to get my shit together now that I've got guidance on how to do it. So grateful for your time and expertise nick brilliant chat well thanks sarah it was a brilliant chat and you're an awesome person to deal with too you know i had a lot of fun and i'm really hoping some of you other uh people that listen to this podcast and maybe you're a bit on the fence are gonna jump in and book a call because i love talking to you guys so just a reminder you can do that over at nickbenger.com slash book all right i hope you enjoyed that episode as much as i did see ya